for people who are sincerely confused about the reality of their body, the absolute most compassionate thing we can do is help them understand that there may be underlying psychological problems and help them come to grips with the realities of their bodies. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril here with my co-host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. Today's episode marks the first of our Let's Talk About It series. Elliot and I are Gen Xers, and our father was a professor, and our mother was a librarian. So pursuing truth was an enormous value in our family. To that end, we were taught to question, research, and even argue because iron sharpens iron. And with a Democrat dad and a Republican mom, there was plenty of debating going on in the Anderson household. And though mom and dad canceled out each other's votes at the ballot box, they possessed the same core values and could have conversations about very dicey topics and still recognize that they loved each other. And even if they didn't totally agree, they knew that each of them was coming to the conversation from a pure place. That was how things were back in the day. But now, not so much. So for this Gen Xer, it's been troubling and quite frankly baffling to witness the changes in our cultural norms over the last several years. We've moved from a position of, I may hate what you say, but I will die for your right to say it, to... If you say something I don't agree with, you're a hateful bigot. According to Jean Piaget, who created a foundational theory for understanding cognitive development, in childhood, we move from concrete operational thought, which is very black and white and all or nothing thinking, to formal operational thought in late adolescence, which allows us to recognize nuance, use abstract reasoning, and consider multiple vantage points. Subjects that, according to Elliot and me, should not be off limits, but sadly, in our age of canceling and censorship, these topics are often considered completely taboo. We invite you to join us in approaching these conversations, utilizing Piaget's formal operational thought. Let's recognize nuance, use abstract reasoning, and consider multiple vantage points. And let's refrain from the name-calling associated with concrete operational thinking. Elliot and I aren't here to stir things up gratuitously. We believe certain conversations need to be had. And currently, these discussions aren't happening enough. So with that being said, let's talk about it. And let's talk about the trans movement. It's certainly one of today's hottest topics with Dylan Mulvaney's face appearing on Bud Light cans and his body appearing in ads for Nike sports bras. Then there's swimmer Leah Thomas, who competed as a male for the first three years of college and then switched to swim as a female and proceeded to win championships. Riley Gaines competed against Leah and speaks out against men and women's sports. 
And she just recently spoke at San Francisco State University where she was assaulted by trans activists. To help us examine the many facets regarding how the trans movement impacts society, our culture, and particularly women, we've invited feminist Kara Dansky to the program. Kara Dansky is a public speaker, writer, and consultant who is committed to protecting the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls on the basis of sex in law and throughout society. In November of 2021, she published the groundbreaking work, The Abolition of Sex, How the Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls. She currently serves as president of the U.S. chapter of Women's Declaration International, which seeks to promote the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. She served on the board of the Women's Liberation Front from 2016 to 2020, with a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and a BA from the Johns Hopkins University. And she possesses an extensive background in criminal justice law and policy. My conversation with Kara Dansky, right after this. Kara, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I feel a little bit like, whoa, I'm talking to a celebrity because I've seen you on various channels and various platforms talking about something I think is really concerning to me as a woman. I'm Gen X and I think about the legacy we're leaving to our daughters and our nieces and granddaughters. And I'm deeply concerned as I know you are, which is why I grabbed your book, The Abolition of Sex. And it's one of those topics that I'm sure you have received an enormous amount. And you share some of that in the book, enormous amount of resistance and pushback from a lot of factions of society. But when we think about why would I want to speak to this? Why are you speaking to this? I think about who's advocating for these young women who are going to be the next generation of women. And your book presents a very strong argument that these are important topics to wrestle with and to speak out against, even when we receive a lot of pushback. So how has your journey been? Maybe educate the listeners in terms of who you are, your path to this space right now. Sure. Thanks so much. And thanks for buying the book. I really appreciate that. So I have always considered myself a feminist and I've always considered myself as being solidly on the political left. And I still think that. And I went to law school, not entirely sure what I was going to do with my law degree. And through various twists and turns, I ended up going down a professional path of doing criminal justice work. I started my career as a public defender and then I ended up spending decades doing criminal justice policy advocacy and reform work in various capacities. I worked for the ACLU from 2012 to 2014, where I oversaw and wrote the report against police militarization. And I was very active in the ACLU's work on mass incarceration. And then in late 2014, I was talking with a friend we were just talking about feminism and we were talking about American party politics and all sorts of things. And I said something about trans rights and she stopped me and she said, all of trans rights is actually very anti-woman. It's very misogynistic and it's anti-feminist. And I had never heard anyone say that before. As a person on the political left, I honestly hadn't given too much thought to trans rights. I just assumed that it was the civil rights movement that it holds itself out to be. But because I was doing criminal justice work, I didn't really have time 
to delve too much into it. And so I asked my friend to elaborate and she did and she explained and then I immediately saw what was going on. And so what I did was I pulled some books down from my shelf, some radical feminist books that I had accumulated in college and in law school. And I reacquainted myself with the points of radical feminism. And I also happened to move from DC to New York in 2015. And I joined a group called the Women's Liberation Front, which is a radical feminist organization dedicated to finding the liberation of women. And then I ended up joining the board of Women's Liberation Front, which is called WOLF. I joined the board in 2016 and I stayed there until 2020. I'm still a member of WOLF. And what ended up happening, it was really interesting, is that over the course of 2015 to 2020, I made some statements publicly in my non-work hours, in my personal capacity, about the importance of protecting the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls on the basis of sex and the threats that gender identity poses to our ability to protect women and girls. And that got me in a great deal of trouble with my colleagues in the progressive criminal justice reform movement. And that effectively ended my career in criminal justice reform. I now cannot get a job doing what I would call criminal justice reform work with any sort of progressive nonprofit organization because of these statements that I have made about protecting women and girls on the basis of sex. And so when I left the board of Women's Liberation Front in 2020, I started getting actively involved in an organization called Women's Declaration International, which is a nonpartisan global organization. I'm currently the president of the U.S. chapter. And we work to advance a document called the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights Throughout Law and Society. As a U.S. chapter, we do that at the local, state, and federal levels. And globally, we do it all over the world and at the international level. So it's very exciting to be part of a global women's rights movement. And I'm very excited to be doing what I'm doing today. That's quite a journey. And it's interesting you brought up the ACLU, which I knew you had been a part of at one point in time, because as we've seen these concerns on the landscape, I keep wondering, where's the ACLU? And actually, where are feminists? Because I see a huge disconnect. And obviously, you've experienced that. If you're a feminist, and I know the term I spoke with Isabella Malbin, who I know you are friends with her, and this turf term, trans exclusionary radical feminist, to my mind, a feminist, her whole raison d'etre is to advocate for women. And yet we see that men in female spaces is harmful to women. And yet it's getting painted in a different way. I want to take a quote from your book. You say, today, a man who wears high heels can call himself a woman on that basis. This new form of gender ideology, which grew out of queer theory in academia, is extremely anti-feminist, anti-woman, and politically regressive. And could you elaborate a bit on that quote? Because especially in light of the fact that so often the trans movement is portrayed as the exact opposite, it's portrayed as pro-feminist, pro-woman, and politically progressive. Yeah, definitely. So feminists have been fighting back against gender for a very long time. And when I use the word gender there, what I mean are sex stereotypes. So many of us today take for granted that we can have short hair or long hair, we as women, we can wear pants if we want to, we can wear dresses if we want to. We don't have to be boxed in to sex stereotypes. 
But getting us there took the hard work of feminists in the 1960s and 70s who said, we don't want to be boxed in to these sex stereotypes. We want to have the freedom to express ourselves for how we are and who we are. And they want a lot of that to their credit and to our benefit, those of us who are on the beneficiary side of that. But what we're seeing today, and as you say, it is touted as being very progressive, but what it really is back to the same old regressive sex stereotypes. People used to say that women have to wear dresses and high heels. Feminists broke out of that. Today, it's possible to say that if you wear dresses and high heels, you're a woman. Even if a man who's engaging in those behaviors, possible to say that is, a, that is the definition of what a woman is, which is really no different from the 1950s. No, and I think that's a really important point that gets lost is that there's this posturing of what it means to be a woman. And so then someone who is identifying as a woman who was born male is going to adopt the dresses and heels and all the things that women have fought to say, that's not what it means to be a woman. Wear the dresses and heels if you want, don't if you want. But it's this almost this caricature of what it means to be a woman. Yes. And a lot of the men who claim to have what I call a woman identity will say explicitly, we're better women than you are. (laughs) They'll say things like, we trans women are better at being women than cis women are because we're better at makeup or something like that. It's so dehumanizing and insulting. I don't know if your audience will know the prefix cis, which I just Mm -hmm. used. Should I explain that? Go ahead. Yeah. Some will, some won't, I would say. So this term cis was invented to describe what they say is people whose gender identity aligns with their sex assigned at birth. Now, the problem with that is that sex is not assigned at birth. Sex is observable in utero and observed at birth. And there's really no such thing as sex assigned at birth, except for the very small category of people who have disorders of sexual development. This is a very tiny category of people. I understand it to be 0.02% of the population. Colloquially, the community of people is known as intersex, but a more proper terminology would be differences of sexual development. And these are people whose chromosomal makeup do not match the typical XX female or XY male. And so when a child is born, an infant is born, and sex really cannot be known, which is in 0.02% of cases, doctors will tick the M box or the F box. But that phrase, sex assigned at birth, has really been stolen. And it's used in an almost abusive way to describe the reality of sex. If you're interested in processing further as you align your mind, body, and spirit, we're here for you. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Us tab. There you can book individual or couples sessions. Or sign up for one of our support groups. Purchase one session or a multiple session package. We'd love to work with you. Sign up at loveandlifemedia.com. I want to read another quote from your book. You observe... No one wants to truly understand the extent or the gravity of what is happening to women in this country under the guise of tolerance and inclusivity. And my question is, when people buy into this issue, many do so. In fact, dear friends of mine, and I'm sure of yours, 
do so because they believe it's the compassionate and respectful thing to do. So how do you respond to that? Because again, it's people with big hearts and lots of love. And from reading your book, your point would be it's misguided. The empathy is misplaced. I honestly think that for people who are sincerely confused about sex, and we have to draw a distinction here. I don't know because I'm not a psychologist, but I'm willing to assume that there are people who are sincerely confused about their biological sex. They are asex and they sincerely believe that they actually are the opposite sex. And I talk about in my book, my experience of being anorexic in college, I was very confused about my body. I was very confused about reality. And my parents did the kindest and most compassionate thing they could possibly have done for me, which was make me essentially get therapy. And I had to go to an eating disorder clinic and I had to do some really hard work on myself of understanding what the source of that was, what was making me sincerely believe that I was obese when the number on the scale said 85, like what's going on there psychologically to make me so wrong about reality. And I'm so glad they did that for me. And I was able to heal through that experience. And I'm happy to say I haven't had any of those issues for coming on 30 years now. So I say all of that to say that for people who are sincerely confused about the reality of their body, the absolute most compassionate thing we can do is help them understand that there may be underlying psychological problems and help them come to grips with the realities of their bodies. And I'll just say very briefly, and we can maybe come back to it if you want, we're seeing increasing numbers of young people, mostly women, but also some young men who are often in their early 20s and who are very angry because in their late teens and early 20s, they were confused about their bodies and the psychological establishment, psychiatric establishment, medical establishment all conspired to go along with their confusion and have these young people take life-altering hormones, which have resulted in young women's voices being inalterably changed, which result in often fatal diseases, increased risk of cancer, loss of bone density. And often these young people have had double mastectomies. In the case of many of the guys, they've had their genitals removed. And these young people are so angry because what they now view as their adolescent confusion about sex was automatically affirmed medically. And what they really needed was to be guided back into an understanding of and an acceptance of the realities of their bodies. And it's absolutely tragic what we're seeing. But I wanted to just get back quickly to say there is a category of people who are sincerely confused about the reality of their bodies. Now, there is also a category of people who are simply lying. They're just lying. These are mostly men who are just lying when they say that they're women. And we shouldn't be afraid to say that. And we shouldn't be afraid to stand up to it. I mean, it's just an undeniable truth that there are men who are lying and saying that they're women in order to do all sorts of horrible things like access intimate women's spaces, domestic violence shelters, rape crisis centers, and prisons. 
I don't see any reason for our society to shy away from that. And affirming that or validating that is not compassion. It is not indeed. And it leads me to my next question, which is related because when I have had this conversation with, again, empathic, loving people, and I assert that boys and men in women's spaces, be it athletics, spas, or prisons, we've seen all of the above. And I say that's harmful to women. I hear the following. Serena Williams is bigger and stronger than the other female tennis players. So certain athletes will always have a physical advantage. That's one argument. And the second is an attack. What are you trying to say that all people who are trans are rapists and pedophiles? How do you respond to those? Sure. So on the first one, I think that tends to be specific to the question of sports. And of course, Serena Williams is the greatest of all time. She's freaking phenomenal. She's fantastic. And she deserves everything that she's gotten. And she deserves to have a very happy retirement and motherhood. So go Serena. People will have natural physical advantage and Mm -hmm. that should absolutely be celebrated. But to me, that has nothing to do with de-sexing sports. And so two more things about that. One is part of the reason for keeping men out of women's sports is not just their physical advantage. Women benefit from women-only sports in a lot of ways that have nothing to do with men's physical advantage. Women develop confidence through athletics. Women develop, there's all sorts of studies that show that women excel academically, women excel professionally, not exclusively, but in part through athletic competition. And there's every reason in my view that we should continue to encourage that. And that's decimated if you allow men to participate. As soon as there's a man involved, the dynamics change. That's just true. Further, women deserve the right to compete for scholarships, for college scholarships. Women in high school, athletics deserve to compete solely against and with each other for scholarships that are intended for women. As soon as you allow a man to compete in women's high school athletics, you give that man an opportunity to obtain a scholarship that was intended for a woman. And that means another woman didn't get that scholarship to go to college. So there are all sorts of reasons for excluding men from women's sports aside from physical advantage, even though physical advantage is undeniable. So that's on the Serena Williams question. And on the other question, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say all trans people are pedophiles and rapists? First of all, we can deconstruct what is meant by the phrase trans people. I have yet to have anyone explain to me what that category even means in any coherent way. So we can maybe try to break that down if you'd like. But also the fact of the matter is that men who claim to be women commit acts of violence at the exact same rate that men who don't claim to be women commit. Feminists for decades now have been pointing out the fact, it's not an opinion, it's just a fact, that the overwhelming majority of sexual and violent crime is committed by men. That does not mean I hate men. That does not mean all men are rapists. It just means that empirically speaking, most people who commit sexual and violent crimes are men. It's not an indictment of all men, but it is true across the board. It is true statistically at the same rate as for men who do not claim to be women as it is for men who do claim to be women. So we're not saying all trans people anything. We're just saying that statistically speaking, men are a threat to women regardless of identity. And the only other thing, you know, with respect to men being held in women's prisons, I really want to know for anyone who's defending a man being held in a women's prison, 
on the basis of his woman identity, how many women raped in prison is too many before we say no? You know, it, it, is one woman getting raped in a prison by a man who claims to be a woman okay? Is five okay? Is 10 okay? Is 100 unacceptable, but 99 is acceptable? How many women have to be victimized by men in domestic violence shelters and in prisons before we just say no men in women's prisons, regardless of identity? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up that stat because I think people might think that's not the case. And if we look at no matter how someone identifies, the rate of violence and aggressive behavior is the same. And I think about these women in these prisons, women end up in prison for a variety of reasons. And I would argue as a developmental psychologist, I've looked at some of the research on women who get into situations where they end up in prison. Oftentimes they came from an enormous amount of trauma in their childhood, probably already victimized many times throughout their childhood. And here they are in prison, which the one thing that might be the bonus of prison is now you're safe-ish. And no, as a matter of fact, you're not. I can't imagine how vulnerable women would feel in that context. It's terrible for the women who are in prison, who, as you say, many of whom have been traumatized, many of whom have been sexually traumatized by sexual or physical violence and who have struggled with addiction. I also just want to say, because this is something that often doesn't get talked about very much, there are female correctional officers who are being forced to conduct strip searches on male prison prisoners on the basis of their woman identity. And regardless of where anyone comes out on how we handle prison in this country, I don't want female correctional officers to be forced to conduct strip searches on male prisoners. I just think that's awful. So I just wanted to get that in there too. Absolutely. In the section of your book entitled Lesbian Erasure and Woke Homophobia, you quote a woman who believes it's a big pyramid scheme where lesbians are conned into taking testosterone as a solution for all of their problems. The medical establishment the pharmaceutical industry and big psych are profiting by putting lesbians into a medical closet. Now, I am no fan of big pharma. I'm a psychologist who's very deeply concerned with the capture of therapeutic profession, my profession, and pharma just loves to diagnose and come up with the ill to peddle the pill is the slogan. What do you think this term big psych refers to? Would this be, again, if there's a troubled young person or a troubled middle-aged person, we can get them on this, not only the pharma, because of course they will be a customer for life because the hormone, hormones will have to be part of their daily regimen for the rest of their life to maintain the appearance or the transition they're trying to achieve. But also the psych, kind of big psych, again, that wasn't your quote, it was someone that you were quoting. But what do you think about that as far as big pharma, big psych, and how it relates to this concern? So we used to have a big problem in this country, which was that there was a tremendous amount of homophobia, which is to say that our society did not take too kindly to gay men or to lesbians to the point that it was criminal to be gay or a lesbian. And we had something called the gay rights movement and the gay rights movement was extraordinarily successful in getting rid of those criminal laws, which I would argue is a very good thing. And for a period of time, a lot of people thought that it was a good idea to have something called conversion therapy, which was treat the gay away. So an individual, a woman or a man who exhibited same sex attraction would be sent to therapy and the therapist's job would be to treat the gay away. And that's what was known as conversion therapy. The idea was that there's something morally wrong about same sex attraction and that if 
young or older, doesn't matter the age, if people could be talked out of their same-sex attraction, then that would be an overall benefit to the individual and to society. That's exactly what's happening now. If young women, and I'll just talk specifically about young women because the woman I'm quoting in my book was talking about lesbians, very often today, if a young woman exhibits same-sex attraction, that is a signal to today's society, which is caught in the grip of gender identity, mm-hmm. that if she is a young woman attracted to women, then she must actually be male. It is one of the most anti-lesbian, homophobic things I have ever seen in my lifetime. And I should say I'm not a lesbian, but I've spoken with many lesbians about this. And she sent to a psychiatrist or a therapist or a psychologist, someone in the in that profession. And it's the exact same thing. She'll be right. told that she's actually a male. It's no different from 1950s treat the gay away. I think that's a fascinating point. And I've had conversations with friends. One of my best friends is a lesbian. And when I brought up some of your points from your book and from my conversation with Isabella, she, it's interesting. She just didn't see that at all as being threatening to her identity as a lesbian, that this all infringes on that. And it's so well put. Thank you for that. Getting back to what you talked about earlier with your own struggle with anorexia, which you talk about in the book. Of course, this leads me to Abigail Schreier's work, Irreversible Damage. And when I think about adolescent girls going through what adolescence brings to girls, it is oftentimes full of anxiety and confusion and I'm uncomfortable with my body. And I think most women have experienced that to some degree. And certainly in the hypersexualized world, as a young girl, you go from girl to then all of a sudden you're getting attention and maybe you like it a little bit. Maybe it's freaking you out. And it makes me sad that this generation, whereas I think in our generation, like you spoke to, there were eating disorders that were very prevalent. Then the next generation, it seemed that cutting became a big thing. And I'm sure there's these things all still exist today, but they do tend to have a kind of epidemic movement. When I was reading your book and reading Abigail's, I was thinking a mother now would take her daughter to a therapist and say, I guess we got to transition. That's to me, like my friend who was bulimic, her mom saying, let's go to the convenience store and we'll load up on all kinds of junk food and I'm going to help you. And then binge. And then here's a ruler to help you purge. That's what's happening, but no one sees it because it's framed as this is the compassionate. This is the affirming way to support your child. And they say things like better a boy who's alive than a dead daughter. You would know these stats better than me, but I don't believe that the research shows that if a kid transitions, they're less likely to commit suicide, but this is the rhetoric that's out there. So speak to that a bit. Yeah. A mother taking her daughter to a therapist now and saying, I guess we have to transition is no different from my parents taking me to a liposuction clinic when I was anorexic and nobody would ever do that. Nobody would think to do that, but that's the exact equivalent of what's happening now. The suicide statistics have been completely debunked. The one study that claims to show that some percentage, I think it's 45 or something percent of trans identified people attempt suicide is completely methodically flawed. The survey respondents were just completely self-identified as transgender and the survey questions were very poorly asked. They asked things like, have you ever thought of suicide? Well, that's an absurd question. And they didn't ask any questions about other underlying problems. They didn't ask anything about congenital depression or about any other psychological issues that might be going on. 
So that survey has been completely debunked and there's ample evidence that children, young people are literally being manipulated by online, I'll just say predators. They're being told to manipulate their parents and threaten suicide, even if they're not suicidal. So yes, parents are being lied to and manipulated. There's a young woman named Chloe Cole who has been speaking out. She's 18 years old. She got she got put on hormones at 13. She got a double mastectomy at 15. And she's finally come out of it and is telling her story publicly. And she says very clearly that the medical establishment lied to and manipulated her parents and told her parents that if they didn't transition her, then she was going to kill herself. And I've never spoken with her or her parents. I, I don't I don't know. But if that's true and I have no reason not to believe her, I can't imagine what her parents must be feeling having encouraged her to do this. I can only imagine that they just must be feeling the most unbearable regret. We don't even let you vote till you're 18. We don't let you drive a car till you're 16. The lack of reason is, it's just astonishing, really. It really is astonishing to me. And I know you're facing it on the daily because this has become your life's work right now. And I really appreciate you speaking out. I know you, I'm sure it has been pretty brutal because I'm sure many of the organizations that you were a part of, and I'm certain you've lost friends and the like. Another point that you state in your book, the word transgender is simply a linguistic sleight of hand whose purpose is to persuade everyone that sex does not exist. Unfortunately for all of us, it has largely succeeded in accomplishing that objective. And words are incredibly powerful. I was curious about your thoughts of how language has been captured in relationship to this movement. Language has absolutely been captured. I think we're starting to see more and become more aware of our society's unwillingness to acknowledge that women are female. We recently had a big decision regarding abortion in the country. And however one comes down on the abortion question, I happen to be very pro-abortion rights. But however anyone comes down, Probably many of us would agree with the statement, only women seek abortions. But in today's linguistic jujitsu, we're actually not allowed to say that. We only can refer to people who seek abortions. Mm -hmm. We're not allowed to refer to women as female. The medical journal, The Lancet, last fall referred to women as bodies with vaginas which is quite possibly some of the most dehumanizing language I have ever heard. The ACLU does it. And yes, our society has almost become completely captured by this whole concept that gender identity is real and that it's more important than the material reality of biological sex. I'll just say quickly on the use of the term transgender. I do say that in the book and my point there is that all of this came out of queer theory, as you said earlier, which grew out of postmodernism in the 1960s and 70s in academia. And I think that the queer theorists at the time thought, rightly, that if they tried to sell the American people across the political spectrum on the idea that sex isn't real, they would have failed spectacularly. And so they invented this word transgender because it sounds nice. 
It sounds like a marginalized group of people. But again, no one has ever been able to explain to me what transgender actually means. It all seems to boil down to some concept of gender identity. And you'll notice I always put that in quotes mm-hmm. because gender identity simply doesn't exist in any material sense, despite the fact that it's being enshrined throughout the United States at all levels of government, including the local, state, and federal levels. It was interesting. The most recent Supreme Court justice couldn't answer what a woman is. She's not a biologist. I think one of the hardest parts of this for me is to see women, to my mind, not supporting each other. (laughs) This seems like such a betrayal of what it means to be a woman. And I know that's not how women who are I don't, for lack of a better word, on the other side of this issue than you and I, I know they don't see it that way, but that's how it feels. And I'm concerned about the next generation, as I said earlier. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or My Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love and Life family. I have a friend who believes the binary notion of sex will likely morph into something more fluid for probably all of us in future generations. What do you make of this assertion? So I think yes and no. Humans are sexually dimorphic mammals. That's just true. And that's not changing. Human beings are sexually dimorphic mammals and we have X chromosomes and we have Y chromosomes and female people have XX chromosomes and male people have XY chromosomes. And the 0.02% of the population that we were talking about before have some other version besides XX or XY. The female of our species carries large gametes known as ovum. The male of our species carries small gametes known as sperm, right? And none of that's changing. That's just the foundation of our basic biology. That's not changing. However, what may be changing has to do with what it means to be human. And what I'm about to say is going to make me sound like a conspiracy theorist, but the problem is that it's all been documented and the people who propagate this are not hiding. They say it openly. So there are people who are pushing a movement to change humans from being sexually dimorphic into essentially being what I'll just call cloud people. They want us to morph into being immortal beings that occupy the cloud. Now, the reason I say this is documented is that there's a man named Martin Rothblatt who claims to be a woman, and he's written a book called From Transgender to Transhuman. And he has a company that's called Terrasem, T-E-R-A-S-E-M. Anyone can look it up. It's all right there. He is very explicit about his mission to collect as much data about all of us as possible to construct algorithms to replace human beings. So I think we're at the very early stages of that. My hope is that we will not see that. I want us to remain very much human. And that's a big part of why I do what I do. I think we have to get really real about it. Again, it's very uncomfortable to talk about this stuff. And it does sound like conspiracy theory, it's all right out there. The people who you know are proponents of this idea that we could somehow become cloud people 
are not hiding who they are or what they stand for. And they have a lot of money. I should emphasize that too. These are not fringe people who are hiding out in their mother's basement making video games, although they are doing that too. <laughs> Mega billionaires who are influencing policy as we speak. I'm just starting to hear about this transhumanism stuff and I don't have a handle on it whatsoever. So this is very interesting. And I wrote down this terrasem. I don't know. Then I go back to what's the why? What? So we're going to all be zeros and ones in some meta universe? Is, I don't even understand. It's so foreign to me. It's very strange. But if you think about it, the phrase gender identity doesn't sound very human, does it? Mm. You know, when we talk about our basic biology, we're human beings with biological functions. We eat, we sleep, all of the things. Women have babies, which is not to say that all women have babies. I'd just like to share a quick story about how dehumanizing words like gender identity are. So I was recently having a conversation. It was, I can say this, it was during a taping of the Dr. Phil show, and I hope it will air soon. It hasn't aired yet, and I'm waiting to hear, and I hope it's in the next couple of weeks. But there was a woman who was a guest on the show, as was I, and this woman refers to herself as a non-binary dad. That's her gender identity. And she calls herself a dad because she had a baby, but she calls herself non-binary. But she literally had a baby. She held a baby in her body and then she had the baby. And she calls herself a non-binary dad because she insists that everyone has a gender identity. And I, expla I explained that I do not have a gender identity. And at one point there was a man pretending to be a woman who was there who said, he said something like, well, people say that I'm not a woman because I can't have babies, but there are women who, there are cis women, he said, who can't have babies and they're still women. So I, he said, am also a woman. And I said to him, I am a woman who can't have babies, which is true. And so the woman who calls herself a non-binary dad, sorry for all the language, here we are. <laughs> I'm trying to track this all. <laughs> I know. So I said, I'm a woman who can't have babies. And this woman, the non-binary dad said, Kara, that means that woman who can't have babies is part of your gender identity. And I thought I was too stunned in the moment to say anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought upon further reflection, okay, my gender identity did not pump myself full of hormones month after month in the days leading up to ovulation while I was trying to get pregnant. My gender identity did not stand in line at a fertility clinic for hours and hours month after month while I was trying to get pregnant. My gender identity did not lie on an exam table and get pumped full of sperm to see if any viable eggs got fertilized. Like we're talking about biological realities here. And for this person to tell me that mm -hmm. woman who can't have babies is part of my gender identity was so insulting and dehumanizing. So I just wanted to share that as an example of just how awful this is and how vicious the attempt to obliterate the material reality of biological sex in law and throughout society is today. When you encounter other women 
who are just, yeah, what is a woman? I don't know. I'm not a biologist. No one can know. What would you say to them? Most of the folks in my audience are women. And most of them have come to me for dating and love advice. And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I've have entered this space partly because I just feel compelled to try to advocate for the younger generation in particular, because they are the most vulnerable. They are the ones who are being brainwashed with, oh goodness knows, TikTok videos and online influencers and all the things we've spoken to already. But so for someone who's a 35-year-old woman is whatever, I don't care. I've got gay friends and I've got trans friends. So what's the big deal? And why are you people so hateful? <laughs> what do you say to the to those women? On one level, I was in the women's room at a popular restaurant in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. And there was a man in there wearing a dress and pink nail polish and putting on makeup. And I happened to know the restaurant owner and it's a very family friendly establishment. And he had his three daughters with him at the restaurant that night. And I didn't want to be in there with the man. And he certainly didn't want his three daughters to be in there with the man. If a woman doesn't care if men are allowed to invade our spaces, I guess that's fine. But what she cannot do is consent for other women. So if a woman says, I'm fine, let him in the women's room, she can do that if she wants to, but she can't consent for me. And she can't consent for my friend, the restaurant owner's young daughters. No woman has the right to do that. I think that women who think that aren't thinking very clearly, if they want to be that way, that's okay. Think about the other women in society who may feel differently and who may actually care about women-only spaces. There's a lot of talk in the UK right now about these kinds of issues. And people are starting to talk about whether elderly women are permitted or should be permitted to demand female service providers in nursing homes. If a woman somewhere doesn't care about men and women's spaces, okay, she doesn't have to, but are you really gonna say that elderly women should not be allowed to demand women-only healthcare providers in nursing homes if they want them? There's a certain amount of lack of sensitivity going on there about women and our right to say no to men. The only other thing I'll just say on that topic is often when people say they don't care, people can be challenged when it comes to actual sex. So you said that, and I know, because I looked into your show a little bit, you talk about life and love and relationships. And you mentioned the phrase TERF, right? Trans-exclusionary radical feminist. So we have a saying about the kinds of people, women in particular, that you're talking about, which is trans rights advocate on the streets, turf in the sheets. Okay, so what does that mean? You might be out there advocating for trans rights 24-7 if you want to, but when it comes down to who is in your bed with you, you care. I guarantee that you care. I don't care if you're straight, gay, or bisexual. I guarantee that you care who you're sharing a bed with. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> Kara, as we wrap up, any parting thoughts? Where can listeners get more of your materials by your book, obviously on all the platforms I would imagine. And then how are you doing as you are out here speaking out and the, the former therapist in me comes out as I'm sitting here talking to you, you're so poised, you're so calm about this, but I'm sure that there have been some deep, deeply painful moments where you have parted ways with former colleagues. I'm sure there's some strange things where 
conservative commentators like Matt Walsh are out there <laughs> talking about some of the same things you are, you're probably like, I didn't see that coming. I, so how are you doing throughout this process on a personal level? That's so nice. Thank you for asking. No, I'm doing great. I've been doing this since 2016. I have come to terms with the fact that I can no longer have a career in the so-called progressive criminal justice reform community. I have lost one of my closest friends of 40 years because she doesn't like what I have to say on this topic. And yeah, it's hard, but I have no regrets about it because I am absolutely convinced that the TERFs are on the right side of history and that Americans, not only Americans, but people all over the world, when they hear our arguments, they agree with us. Americans, I don't care where you are in the political spectrum, Americans know how babies are made. Come on, we can just be honest about that. And I feel like we're gonna win. So I'm pretty confident about that. Yeah, it's really hard watching people like Matt Walsh get a high budget film and get all sorts of fame and glory <laughs> for this. But men taking credit for what women do is nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And I feel really good about it. I'm very fortunate to have the support of my partner. And I, I feel like we're going to win. Thanks again so much for your time today and for your important work. And yeah, so the abolition of sex is the book and can they follow you on social media? Are you active? I'm sure you get a shadow banned and censored all over the place. Goodness. Can you even be on social media with your message? I haven't been banned. Please follow me on Twitter at Kdansky. Same thing on Facebook. And please go to womensdeclarationusa.com. That's the organization that I'm the president of, and you can learn all about it. From there, you can visit womensdeclaration.com, which is our global declaration on women's sex-based rights. And it's meant to be nonpartisan. Anyone can sign the declaration. So please do if you feel like you agree with the terms. And any woman can submit a volunteer application if you'd like to volunteer with us in the US. And I hope many of your viewers will. Thanks again so much, Kara. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you as always for joining us today. We truly appreciate you being a part of the Love and Life family. We'd love to stay connected via our newsletter. Please head over to loveandlifemedia.com to sign up. Thanks again. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.